Hello and welcome to Laidback Lush, where we talk about wine, beer, and spirits. I am your over-descriptive co-host, Michael, an enthusiast of all things craft, and with me is Gabe. I am WSET Level 3 Certified in Wine, and I'm an administrator for a wine and spirits educating body. In our last episode, we discussed the horrifically complex life cycle of a tiny little pest called Phylloxera, a xenomorph-like creature with a series of different <laughs> physical forms that are specialized to destroy grapevines and nearly wiped out the world of wine as we know it. You did not put xenomorph-like in your notes. It's the truth, though. <laughs> Think about it. Different life cycles, different life stages that are specialized in order to continuously breed. The fact that they have three different types of spreading methods over three different parts of the plant, and then the one that they don't continuously breed with is the one where they have wings. You are convincing me. I'm yeah, not going to lie. It's a xenomorph. Come on. Yeah. I just I was unaware Michael had put that in his notes, so um that that took me a little bit off guard. I'm not gonna lie. Oh yeah, no, I wrote my introduction in private behind a small wall of blankets. A wall is a very generous term. A very small wall. It's um it'd be a wall to it, the aphids. It would be a blanket fort for a two foot tall gnome. <laughs> oh dear. Or it could be a massive structure for the tiny aphid phylloxera, which only measures 0. 0.02 inches. inches yes. This is a very small creature with very large impact. In many ways, however, this little aphid phylloxera did actually destroy the world of wine as we know it, as the vulnerability to its different tools is most apparent in Vitis vinifera, which is native to Europe. This aphid was introduced as a destructive interloper from its natural habitat in the Americas, where the native varieties evolved in tandem, having natural resistances that largely kept them from notice. We will be discussing the causes, reactions, efforts, and eventual solutions to the phylloxera, I guess you would call it an epidemic, plague? Oh yeah, it was an epidemic. Also, uh, um, I'll be linking a thesaurus in the show notes for Michael's <laughs> little spiel there. Sorry. But not sorry. <laughs> no, you're not. Yeah, I know you're not. No, you're not. lying. You're lying yeah. to me and you're lying to our fans. How does that feel? We have fans. So many fans. Now I'm torn between feeling a little bit of guilt and just being happy. I have to plug all of them in before the show to make sure that, you know, they're actually operational. Oh, gotcha. And speaking, plugs, pun. <laughs> and speaking of plugs, please do follow us at Laidback Lush on Instagram and Twitter. This is humiliating. <laughs> We are not funny. <laughs> no, we're not. But we're we're having fun, and that's what counts. Uh, we're going to be talking about all that today, though. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> on Laid Back Lush. On la today on Laid Back Lush. <laughs> um, so th the big question that a lot of people asked, even as this bug was being identified, was why were they only noticing it at the time that they were? How come there wasn't actually more of an impact earlier on? So the American vines were brought over to Europe in the 1850s and the 60s. Well, let's actually give a little bit of context. Yeah, let's first, go for it. Before we get into the history, history of it. Gotcha, gotcha. All right. So as Michael said, phylloxera evolved here in the North Americas, particularly Central Eastern U.S. and Southern Canada with the native grapevines that were in those particular parts. So those specifically were Vitis Labrusca, not Lambrusco, like 
the wine from Italy that is a completely unrelated vine that is a Vitis vinifera vine. Labrusca is thought by most sources to be the um, kind of instigator of this whole epidemic. We also have Vitis riparia, which will come into play later on for rootstock purposes. Some people will argue that this was actually the source of the plague, but documentation at that time is kind of fuzzy. We just don't really particularly know. But these are the two species to really focus on, at least for phylloxera's sake. There are much more American species of wild grapes, but uh, these are the ones that are important for our purposes. So these American vines are resistant to phylloxera, and why is that? So because these grapes evolved in tandem with phylloxera, they were able to adapt to the attack of particularly their root systems. So American vines will produce a very thick sap that essentially chokes the nymphs or aphids when they are trying to feed on the roots themselves. That is so brutal. Yeah. And if the nymphs are able to bypass that, or if I guess there's a big enough uh, infection rate or enough aphids feeding on the roots, the plant is able to form a tissue barrier over the infected area. Because remember from our last episode, what makes phylloxera so dangerous to root systems in particular is their saliva has a poison in it to the plant that prevents it from healing itself. So the American vines have rootstock that is actually able to form a barrier, even if it doesn't fully heal, prevent infection from getting in from fungus, bacterium, viruses, all that fun stuff that can live in the soil. So we we mentioned the fact that it's it's kind of like a uh, you have all of these different vulnerable spots as this thing is just continually multiplying in each one of its life stages yeah. and causing all of these points of access for other species of you know fungi all this stuff to go into it the fact that the American varieties were able to then just basically form that second bark that second barrier yeah. in order to prevent the diseases and the fungi from getting inside of the vines is absolutely remarkable. Yes. And unfortunately, our European vines, which is Vitis vinifera, have none of those natural protections because there is not phylloxera naturally. Well, I guess it's been long enough now you could say it's endemic to that population. But, but at the time of its introduction, there was no need for those defenses because it was not a presence. Correct. And so there is no defense from Vitis vinifera vines against the attack of phylloxera. Again, if you want more details on that and you've only listened to this episode, if this is your first episode listening to us, we went into the whole life cycle and why they're so damaging in our previous episode. So we have these vines being brought over to Europe in the 1850s and the 1860s, mm -hmm. which happens to coincide with the invention of the steamboat. Yes. Now, from what I know, the aphids actually can't survive very long boat rides. So it was actually the speed of our travel that ended up making this a problem. And we see this uh, inside of ecological places all around the world. There's poison frogs in Australia that, you know, uh, Tasmanian devils won't avoid. And so then they die. There are just so many examples of native species being completely thrown off in their ecology by just one small foreign element. Yeah. So we also had some other things that were going on, though, at the same time. It wasn't just phylloxera that was affecting worldwide. Yeah. So if you don't know, powdery mildew is a form of, well, mildew, mold, that affects grapes. It can destroy a harvest. It's also called oidium. That's the scientific term for it. 
And ironically enough, um, there were some vines brought over from New Jersey to help research addressing that issue to see if these American species were resistant to it. They were brought to Austrian vineyards in Klosterneuburg in the 1850s, again, as Michael said. Um, Fun fact, I ran across a genetic study of phylloxera in research for this podcast, and the genetic groups are a little bit different in Europe. So over here in Austria and kind of Eastern Europe, we have EU2 genetic group. That is where we think can be traced back to these vines that came over from New Jersey. We also have the grape that might have been Isabella Agron Noir, a hybrid grape from Pennsylvania. These were brought to southern France, which we'll get into here shortly, and that is the EU1 genetic group. So probably should say this on the onset. I mentioned this very briefly already, but documentation at this time was very hit or miss, and there were a lot of very different competing theories on where this all originated from, where it came from, how it spread. Well, and in point of fact, a lot of them didn't even agree on the cause itself. Correct. They weren't willing to accept the fact that this tiny little aphid was capable of causing this damage. So from a purely like, do we know the exact specific point of infection? We don't. We do know where the first observed outbreak took place. But even with this genetic research, I don't think we still quite fully know what the point of impact was that really set off this epidemic. The only thing that we really know are some overarching facts about the time period Correct, that could have led to it being the most ripe time for it to happen. Yes, and that also will affect the percentages and numbers in this episode because they are all over the place. Yeah, from about five different sources, I got five different numbers. Correct, yeah. So, Yeah, and a lot of this is also because in the wine industry at the time, especially, there was an aggressive use of rhetoric for the purposes of promulgation and garnering reputation. It was a method of promotion that persists to this day in the wine industry, really. Um, But in that time, because there was also such a lack of documentation, it, you know, the, the weaponized rhetoric was really all you had. Yeah. But our most solid theory, at least for the moment, is that it was probably these vines that were brought over, even if it wasn't specifically to Austria, these vines that were brought over for botany research purposes, because Europe was very interested in American grapevines to see if they were viable for wine production Mm -hmm. in Europe as well. So we do know that this interchange, because botany was very big, particularly in this era, was what ultimately led to this. We just don't really know the exact point of impact where they, it started. Now, they were able to fix or find a solution for the powdery mildew, at the very least, in the yes. form of a chemical solution, sodium bicarbonate. Mm-hmm. This was a very expensive process, and it was also very tedious. Yeah. Uh, so not everybody could afford it. Yeah. But it was it was a solution at the time. However, the other problem that they started facing was such a slow burn, and it had nothing to do with the powdery mildew. Mm -hmm. In this case, it was actually in France when you had some vine growers starting to complain about the fact that their yields were not coming to fruition. They weren't weren't coming out as well. Theories started to be generated, oh, oh, maybe it was just a, a bad winter, you know, maybe we're just not doing certain things, maybe we're over harvesting. But it ended up getting so bad that it couldn't be ignored. Yeah. At a certain point, 25% of vineyards in France were destroyed. 
Well, over 25. Yeah. 25 is like the very low estimate that I saw. Yeah. So, and again, these numbers are shaky. Yeah. Um, I mean, I saw up to 70% by the time yeah. it was all said and done of vineyards were destroyed. And that's the thing. We were seeing uh, the wine production being cut by nearly half. Sometimes it was, you know, people said it was like three fourths, but essentially you had anywhere between around like 30 to 60 hectoliters being produced by France which was reduced to anywhere between 12 and 15 hectoliters. Million hectoliters. Yeah, million, excuse yeah. me, million hectoliters. So obviously, like, this was, this became so rampant, it couldn't be ignored. Yeah. Eventually, people started to even think, oh, it's not just a bad harvest. It's not just over-harvesting. It's the wrath of God. They literally <laughs> yeah. thought that God was punishing them yeah. for, uh, for vices. So, you know, they had not observed the phylloxera louse yet. They did not. They literally had no idea. So it sounds kind of goofy with our current understanding of what actually happened, but I might have thought the same thing at the time, to be honest, when your plants just start dying for no reason. And this is your only source of income. Yeah. You know, you, you start panicking a little bit. Yes. So where where did we see uh, some of these places that were being affected the most? So the epicenter of the actual outbreak that was observed, kind of putting aside, we don't know if it fully originated here or not, was the Rhone Valley particularly Peugeot, La Croix Saint-Rémy, and Graveson. These are some sub-regions in the Rhone Valley. These appear to be where the first observed dampening of yields and then the vines dying in France. So an interesting thing, going back to that Isabella au Grand Noir, this was a popular grape at the time in southern France. They really liked the way it tasted. It's very fragranced, has a grape apparently. This is actually the same grape that is Isabella still that is produced in uh, northern parts of the United States. So we think that bringing these vines over might have been that inciting incident in the Rhone Valley because the Rhone Valley is kind of in the more southerly portion of France. Some sources uh, say that the infected vines that were brought to the Rhone Valley were actually brought from the UK because as early as 1863, we had leaf galls mm. that were observed on vines in the UK. And the UK was doing a lot of exchange, just like the rest of Europe was, with our vines from the United States at that time. So you mentioned the fact that it was in the UK. Other countries were also affected yes. by this. It wasn't just France. It was pretty much all of them <laughs> it was basically the entirety of europe got yeah. nearly wiped out and I, I know that sounds rather extreme but it really is the case that if we had not caught this nearly all if not all of the vineyards eventually would have been wiped out in europe this could have led to the extinction of vitis vinifera vines as we know them now it's interesting because they started to do things in order to try and solve this before yeah. they identified the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things was also very expensive. They would just flood the vineyards. Yes. And I forget, it was like a period of uh, like a week that they would flood it, something yeah. like that. Yeah. And they, something like that. they would find that their, their grapes were yielding again. Mm -hmm. Again, they didn't know what was going on and yeah. not everybody was close enough to a water source or had the money to do so. Exactly. That was one of the big hurdles for that solution. But at least that solution kind of worked. There was another solution. Uh, we'll get into that later. Uh, so finally, the little pest was noticed by somebody and they realized that this is what was causing it. It was, it was phylloxera. Mm -hmm. It was named in 1868. 
many people didn't want to believe that this was the cause. Even when it was presented, even when the science was backing it up, even when researchers were saying this is the problem, people weren't willing to believe it for whatever reason. There were some beliefs that were more legitimate than others, I'll say, because one of the biggest things in any field of science that you'll run across is the correlation versus causation argument. Mm -hmm. There were some people that were saying, well, okay, so we know these root louse are present as these vines are dying. Is that the cause or is that a symptom of whatever is causing the roots to die? So that was, I think, a more valid discussion, but there was also a lot of superstition and also... um, nationalism wrapped up in all of this yeah there is a lot of political resistance to the idea of it being phylloxera because of some of the methods that were then proposed Mm -hmm. um, by by people who were doing the research it got so bad that they actually started to offer money from the government in order to find a solution they were going to pay somebody thirty thousand francs if they could present them with something and people were presenting solutions left and right which adjusted for what that would cost now is A lot of money. Like you could maybe buy a small country. Yeah. Which essentially they were trying to buy their country back. Their their industry, now their main export is actually, uh, as we discussed in a different episode, aerospace technology. Correct. Which is awesome. Uh, But at the time, wine was it. And by this point, when they had, you know, identified what phylloxera is and stuff, not only had this spread throughout Europe, this had spread throughout the entire wine-growing world. This mm-hmm. had reached Australia, it had reached New Zealand, it had reached California. You might be thinking, wait, I thought this was a native plant to California. Well, they were planting Vitis vinifera vines yeah. in California. In Virginia, because of phylloxera, when Thomas Jefferson and a couple of other people tried, their vines died after a couple of years because, of course, they did. In California, though, because the soil composition and just the way that you know our country geologically is laid out phylloxera had not made it to california at that point so they were able to start cultivating vines until phylloxera hit and then their vines started dying as well argentina and chile as we have actually discussed in our episodes about those countries were spared because of their very specific geological makeup yeah Um, and there were a couple of places we'll get to later on the episode that were spared as well yeah apparently these aphids phylloxera do not like hot dry and sandy correct so you know you can kind of see the commonality between chile and argentina it's it's interesting and this is a little bit of an aside but in my research phylloxera for as horrific of a pest as it is and the fact that it nearly wiped out an entire continent's worth of wine production is actually really weak its strength is really just in that it can reproduce so quickly and so much. Yeah. Like most insects. It's more that swarm aspect that really makes it dangerous. But overall, even within, like, it can have trouble going from one vineyard to another, even if they're like a plot over, mm-hmm. because they can't travel that far in the soil. They travel easier between very close together vines. And that was a big problem in Europe because a lot of European producers also had field blends, which were where grapes had just been growing for who knows how long at that point, And they were just everywhere. And that's actually part of where we got our idea of spacing out vines to begin with was to help slow the spread of phylloxera. That, that's an aside, um, just a, an interesting thing of the weakest link. Yeah, it's it's amazing how delicate that a thing can be. But as soon as one of those resistances is removed... It suddenly skyrockets. Yes. So we we discussed the fact that they were vineyard flooding. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were doing that. 
some people were actually as a as a resistance to other solutions and also because of their beliefs they were doing exorcisms and they would bury frogs into the <laughs> ground and then they would urinate on them as part of a ritual a type of like shamanistic ritual in order to stop the plague legend has it that biodynamic vineyards to this day are still utilizing the practice <laughs> i was actually just thinking that i was just like <laughs> come on and uh this this had uh, to nobody's surprise no discernible improvement uh after the burying of frogs yeah your vineyard just smelled like dead frogs <laughs> lovely i'm sure lovely so then they they had to start asking where can we find a solution well there wasn't even at this point an identifier that this was coming from America. Mm -hmm. People didn't know that. They, they were like, okay, so it might be these guys, but what are these guys? So you ended up having one person coming to France. He was like, well, hey, I'm going to travel to America and see if there are any solutions there. What was his name? Uh, I believe uh, that individual is in my notes. <laughs> Somewhere. J.E. Planchon. Uh, Planchon? I don't know how to pronounce his name. Planchon. Planchon. He was a French botanist. He was actually thinking about finding a solution inside of the Americas. So he went there and ended up teaming up with a guy named Charles V. Riley, and both of them ended up going and consulting a man in Texas named T.V. Munson. Now, the way that this happened is Planchon went over to America, and they were like, hey, well, we, we actually think that we have the same louse mm -hmm. here. So they got the louse, they sent the louse back over to France, and they were able to confirm it is the exact same bug. But then they were like, okay, so why is it that it's not killing all of these vines here in America? So they actually did a cool little experiment where they introduced a bunch of the aphids to two vines, one from America and one that was Vitis vinifera. So the thing is, though, is that they only put it on the vines from america and they migrated over to the other one every single time that they repeated the experiment so then they had to ask well why is it that these things seem to have a very strong preference and that's when we had tv munson it's actually kind of funny how many of these are like it's all je tv whatever yeah, everybody was abbreviating back then apparently yeah tv munson is my favorite though he was a super eccentric American botanist who began to study the different resistances of American vitis and categorized them, including to that of a much destructive aphid that we know as phylloxera. Yes. So, and he was an oddball in his family. Like he had a couple of different brothers who were all in different fields. I believe that they were um, in whiskey production and he just went off and started studying plants in Texas. The dream. The dream. So they ended up consulting TV Munson. And he basically had all the solutions as far as wine types that were the most resistant. In point of fact, he had certain vines that were not only resistant to phylloxera, but also were capable of standing up to the pH or were tolerant to the pH that's present in the lime-littered soils of France. And that was Vitis riparia vines, if I remember correctly. I do not have it written down, so I, I cannot confirm or deny. So then the question was, all right, so do we do hybridization? So are we blending the vines? Because that'll have a very big difference in the eventual fruit. Do we replace the vines that are in Europe with these American vitis, which was not preferable either? Or 
is there a method by which we can actually have the strength of the American root stock and the growing potential of the Vitis vinifera vines themselves? And this came in the form of grafting. Correct. There was actually a solution. Now, this is really interesting. So if you don't know anything about grafting, grafting is a process by which branches from one plant are transferred to any part of another plant. Several methods can be used, but all involve exposing a segment under the bark of the new host plant and attaching the limb or branch to that stock, usually bound with tape. Now, both the new host plant or the stock, in the case of this particular instance called rootstock, and the foreign branch then heal each other until they are strongly fused. And that whole vascular system that we're talking about in our last episode is then shared between them. So the rootstock is supplying the attached limbs with sap and support which allows them to continue to function as the specific plant cells they were already established as. Yeah. Which meant that grafting on to American rootstock wasn't going to actually change the grapes at all. All it would do is give them an effective defense. And yet. And yet. And yet. What was the uh, reaction of, of <laughs> the, the French wine population? Well, uh, we got a new slur. Mm. Out of that little exchange when it was first proposed to the French mm -hmm. by was... both Charles V. Riley and J.E. Planchon in yes. uh, 1870. Yes. Um, so <laughs> they were called Americanists and anyone who dared to adopt the practice of grafting or even advocate for it was called an Americanist. In you the know, middle of a plague. Yeah. <sighs> we are recording during a thunderstorm, apparently. Bacchus himself heard you and, and <laughs> roared in agreement of how horrendous this was. The power of nationalism, for lack of calling it anything else, because that's what it was, mm -hmm. is a hell of a drug to a lot of people. And the French just thought that this would corrupt their vines, for lack of a better way of putting it. In some way, it would soil them. It would change the flavors. It doesn't. Fun fact. They're just was this prejudice against using american stock it was it was an abomination to some people even oh, yeah it, well these vines were you know being developed over years and years and they had such a rich history it was like a sacred thing yeah and to mix the holy and the unholy was sacrilege to the point that they made it illegal they said in all of france not allowed you will have property seized you will face fines this is illegal until until it got way too bad <laughs> it literally it, it got to the point where they were facing a complete eradication of not only france all of europe was at risk at this point granted i didn't do much research into how other countries handled this mm -hmm. so i don't know if they were as opposed or not but at least in france it got to a point where they realized we will lose our entire wine production if we do not suck it up well, essentially but even then they only lifted the sanctions in south france because they thought yeah. oh well they're they're inferior so yeah. you know we'll we'll test it out down in the <laughs> rhone valley but you know <laughs> and it worked and it worked and just to reiterate grafting makes no discernible difference on the taste of a resulting wine from a vitis vinifera vine that is put on american rootstock it will affect other parts of the vine so nutrient uptake will be affected the vine vigor itself which is how aggressively the vines put out new shoots and leaves those are affected 
So that can affect the taste of a final wine, but it doesn't affect the character of the grapes themselves. Yeah. It's just it changes the the nutrient balance that the winemaker has to keep in mind. Well, really, the vineyard manager um, yeah. has and, to monitor. And the vineyard manager can do things in order to either boost or lessen any particular mm-hmm. function inside of that and realm. We have rootstock now that's very much catered to balancing that sort of thing out. We've done extensive research at this point. So like we know what works in terms of rootstock now. So that's not really an issue. France eventually found out it's not an issue. And, and now all of their vines yeah. have American rootstock. Yep. So really, you're welcome, rest of the wine producing <laughs> world. Well, but also... Oh, so we're sorry. We're sorry. <laughs> we're sorry. But we fixed it. We 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 made up. We made amends, right? Well, that's the thing. It's it's the it's a human problem that we are so well connected. But yeah. it's also one of the things that makes us very effective at doing things like, you know, uh sharing resources, that sort of thing, or invading other places. And doing and, science. And and science. And our understanding of nature is something that should be promoted. And I think that it's perfectly okay to enjoy the the story and the success of the country that you're from. But when you start allowing yourself to get like swept up into an ideal history that then puts in standards that are preventing you from making progress for your country, that's not love. That's that's idol worship. So, you know, love your country in an effective way. You I'm know, not going to resist saying anything about modern-day America. Right I now. am saying it without saying it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's a human thing. We want to be connected. Uh, we want to be where we want to be as fast as possible. Yeah. And sometimes that comes with very unexpected consequences. Also, apologies if the rain is distracting, but, you know, we can't help that. Yeah, it's, it's really coming down out there. Yeah. Moving on a little bit, though. So... An interesting phenomenon that has happened as a result of the phylloxera epidemic is we have discovered that we still don't know everything about phylloxera and how it operates because there are vineyards that up until very recently or some still to this day in very isolated pockets of, yes, even Europe, but all over the world have remained phylloxera free. And we don't fully know why. There are some plots of Pinot Noir and Champagne in particular that I believe it was in 2005, I think they might have succumbed to it. Um, but they remain phylloxera free for some reason. We don't know. The, the soil type is not particularly sandy. We don't even fully know if sandy soils are a preventative measure for phylloxera. We've just observed that in areas that are sandy or looser, like Santorini in Greece is a good example. They grow Assyrtico there a lot. The Assyrtico vines appear to remain untouched by phylloxera. We don't know if that's because the Assyrtico grape is naturally resistant for some reason or if it's due to their very um, rocky volcanic soils that are on santorini we think it's probably the soils because again in our argentina and chile episodes the soils are what's thought to prevent the phylloxera epidemic from really reaching those countries as well which is weird because again we we haven't observed the why right so it's not like the sand is just sitting there killing the aphids there might be something to it though yeah and mountains also seem to be providing natural barriers for certain regions. If you know anything about grape growing in Washington, Washington has a mountain range that a lot of their grapes are grown on. And on one side of the mountain, they did get phylloxera. On the other side of the mountain, they have not gotten it. So it just seems that phylloxera can't cross a mountain. Well, and one crazy thing, though, about 
aphids in particular is aphids are highly adaptable yeah uh much like katie did once they go to an area they start adapting quickly which is probably why it took so long for them to get to that one part in champagne but they eventually did Mm -hmm. so but at this point because of the fact that a balance seems to have been created it looks like we're going to be seeing the natural resistances of the vines working again in tandem until some day in the future where you know some type of development suddenly gives a too large of an advantage but typically in nature it's very small advantages over a long period of time yeah so this was uh this was just a crazy thing that ended up happening yeah and it actually still does happen in modern times so as i said in that vineyard in chamber those vineyards in champagne in 2005 i believe i read phylloxera finally did reach those vineyards there is a very big outbreak in napa in the 80s actually yeah that spread to oregon and washington it was that bad um that one was interesting though because that was actually due to a rootstock that was supposed to stop it but ended up not being effective against phylloxera and that was rootstock axr-1 if you are a a nerd like me and are interested (laughs) in that kind of thing so we do still deal with phylloxera outbreaks every once in a while. There's actually a very recent outbreak in, I want to say, McLaren Vale in Australia. Mm. Um, Australia largely has gone un- um, unmolested. Or, yes, yes, by phylloxera. But there are some places that are prone to it. And um, McLaren Vale, if I remember correctly, uh, is one of those regions. And... It's just something that they kind of have to watch. Australia has very strict quarantining measures for all of their farm equipment, all of that stuff. Chile, actually, also fun fact, has very strict import isolation quarantining practices for pretty much anything that gets brought into the country in terms of like botany. So that's also thought to be a part of why they were able to avoid phylloxera up to this point. But who knows what the future holds or if phylloxera mutates and we get a new strain that is able to travel farther in soils or makes all of phylloxera winged so it can fly you know um but we don't know and that's uh the interesting and also terrifying part of this do you know there's a movie where the quarantining of a of a specific person who's exposed to an alien element is overridden by a captain and it causes for an entire crew to die which brings us back to the comparison between <laughs> phylloxera and the xenomorph mammalian. <laughs> oh my god! Anytime I get to mention Sigourney Weaver is just a, is a pleasure, you know. So yeah, yeah that's man. that's a good point. Actually, and she was the science officer, not the science officer, but she was in charge of uh, keeping quarantining as a thing, and she was overridden by the captain. So. Still a problem that we're dealing with today, this xenomorph-like aphid <laughs> throughout the world. And finding the science behind this as we continue to deal with it is just the most fascinating thing. Yeah. This huge thing, hopefully we'll, we will never see something that impacts wine like this, other than the death of bees, which is probably inevitable at this point. But well, some some populations are rebounding, actually. Yeah, hopefully uh, but... we can see some good some good stuff. I know that Virginia beekeepers in particular are are having such a hard time yeah. managing hives at the very least. Yeah. Um, but hopefully we get some more wild bees going. But this was such an unprecedented event and really represented the biggest threat against the worldwide wine industry as a whole that we have ever seen at any time. Yeah. 
I'm just happy that we we found a solution. Well, speaking of insidious threats to the wine industry, thank you guys for tuning in to Laid Back Lush. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much for joining us on this journey um, of disgusting biology, the fear of change, the fear of change, and racism, the eventual xenophobia, the eventual, though, balance and understanding of nature that allowed us to keep wonderful beverages going into the mouths of grateful consumers. Yes. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Please do follow us at Laidback Lush on Instagram and Twitter, and we will be talking to you guys next time in a special episode yeah. where gabe and i <laughs> once again torture ourselves with a terrible wine beer or spirits yeah. product we don't know which one yet i i was thinking if we can find some mad dog 2020 if we okay <laughs> there's a difference between a like a new experience that we know is going to be bad and just lowering standards that's uh, that's actually a, a very good point like I, I already know I don't like Mad Dog. I you don't like know. windshield wiper fluid. No, I don't. In point of fact, I have never liked windshield wiper fluid. But if you guys have any suggestions upon the hearing of this, we'll probably have already recorded the episode. But we would still love to hear from you in our DMs. I mean, I'm sure we'll do another episode in the future of bad alcohol tasting. Yeah, we've already done two. Might as well continue the grand tradition. Actually, um, I'll, I'll, I'll reestablish the challenge. Is there a super cheap alcoholic beverage that you enjoy? Gabe and I want to torture ourselves with it. <laughs> but I already drink Fireball, Michael. I mean, so do I. Let's be real here. Actually, the other night, uh, I was out with some friends, and we were going to do some tequila shots. And, you know, Reposado, it just tastes good. I end up yeah. sipping on it. But they only had a little bit of the tequila left, so they mixed it with Fireball. Wait. Why do I want to try this, though? It was fascinating, and I annoyed all my friends by sitting there sipping it and evaluating <laughs> it. <laughs> I would have been right there with you. I, I support you in this. Yeah, it was like you could smell the Fireball, but you tasted a lot of like the melon coming off of the the tequila. See, that, that just sounds delicious. Yeah, me. it was like a spicy melon. Yeah. Anywho, uh, again, thank you guys so much for joining us. I have been Michael. I have been Gabe. Cheers. Cheers.